The key part in all of the projects we do, whether it's international work in Cambodia or even the work we're trying to do here at home, it's to involve community to help collect some of their information for their resource or their, their natural environment. And people around the planet want to help. In this episode of Sagebrushers, we welcome two prominent faculty from the College of Science, Dr. Sudeep Chandra and Dr. Zeb Hogan. I'm Brian Sandoval. I'm a proud graduate and president of the University of Nevada, Reno, and I'm your host of Sagebrushers. Dr. Chandra is a professor of limnology in the biology department at the university. He also serves as director of the university's Global Water Center, director of the Osman Institute for Global Studies, and director for the Castle Lake Environmental Research Station. Dr. Chandra's research focuses on the conservation of aquatic ecosystems and the betterment of humanity and environmental policy through scientific discourse. Dr. Hogan is a research associate professor of biology at the university and the host of the popular National Geographic television series, Monster Fish, where he travels around the globe to find some of the world's largest fish. His research focuses on migratory fish ecology, fisheries management, and endangered species issues. Today's podcast is being recorded at the Mathewson IGT Knowledge Center on our university's campus. I'm really excited about today's episode. So Dr. Chandra and Dr. Hogan, welcome to Sagebrushers. Again, I'm really excited to have this conversation. So before we get into the details, um, how did you two come to become friends and how did you come to know one another? Well, like all great things, uh, we became friends when we were in school. And so we were in graduate school in the late 1990s and through a common friend uh, that was in our graduate program, we became housemates. And then from that point on, we shared experiences, stories, scientific endeavors, fun endeavors together, and, and have stayed friends since. Sudeep and I were lucky in graduate school. Sudeep was working up at Lake Tahoe. I was working in on the Mekong River. So we were both working in these amazing natural environments that we were passionate about. I think that's one of the reasons that we became friends and we got to know about each other's work and travel with each other. And I didn't know that part that you were roommates. Yeah, we were uh, grad school housemates at, at, uh, in Davis, California. Wow. So you could probably finish each other's sentences by now, right? In some ways. But, you know, what's great about our friendship, I think, I don't know how you feel, Zeb, but it's, it also complements one another. I think he's, Zeb is forever this really positive optimist about conserving places and biodiversity and taxa. And I feel like I'm more the pragmatic sort of mechanical person that might think about the limnology or the bottom-up way that uh, systems may work. And then um, I think that's a good compliment. So did you two ever anticipate or think about that you would end up as faculty at the same university? Not until it happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I did not think this was going to really? happen. And what an opportunity, right? Like to, to be able to work through postgraduate school many, many, two decades ago, and then to think that you're still working together with someone that you've developed a friendship with is pretty amazing. I don't know how many friends get to do that. No, and the research you're both doing now truly has a global impact. So could you each talk about some of the current projects you have underway and where you're working around the world? Yeah, I've spent uh, the last 20 years uh, focused on the ecology and conservation of the world's largest freshwater fish. And it all started with a 
uh, work with National Geographic and asking a very simple question, what seemed like a very simple question, but has turned into my entire research and outreach program, which is, what is the world's largest freshwater fish? And so for the last 20 years, my entire time at UNR, working in, in the biology department, College of Science, uh, traveling around and doing research with communities and scientists all over the world to learn about freshwater biodiversity. Well, I bet you have a million stories that you could tell. Um, and we don't have time to do that, but folks can watch your show, right? Do you have a television series? Yeah. So starting about 10 years ago, uh, through work with National Geographic, we started filming a television show called Monster Fish. And each episode of the show, we go to a different location, work with local scientists and fishermen to learn about a big species of fish that occurs in that area. So we've been to Europe looking at giant Wells catfish, uh, Asia with Mekong giant catfish, Australia with Murray cod, and then down to uh, Africa to look at the Nile perch, the Amazon, to look at the giant air-breathing arapaima. So wow. it's, it's been quite a journey and, uh, yeah, really a passion and very lucky to be doing it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but we want to hear from Dr. Chandra and what you're up to. Yeah, and so uh, basically my motto is if you have lakes and rivers, I will travel. And, and so our global work, remember, can also be local work because local capacity is global capacity. And so uh, the projects we've been involved with recently are trying to do comparative studies and try to conserve large lakes uh, of the world, whether it's Lake Tahoe right in our backyard here in Reno, Nevada, or Lake Atitlan in Guatemala. It's a large, deep lake there that has many of the shared lessons and issues that we have at Lake Tahoe. And so trying to solve problems across these large lakes for me gets really uh, exciting. And we've had other projects now lately that's just wrapping up comparing uh, the limnology or the fundamental process of fresh waters in global rivers. So we've been doing comparisons of rivers in Mongolia, whether it's in the semi-arid basins that are there, to the mountain steppe basins, to the ones in North America. And so been able to travel and make some comparisons. And the rationale behind these studies is to not only just do science for science's sake, but to also try to understand how we might conserve or restore these systems. Uh, we all rely on fresh water. No, and you, you mentioned it, and I didn't know until recently what the study of limnology is. So could you talk a little more about that? Yeah, limnology is really an exciting scientific field uh, in terms of ecological sciences. Uh, it's the study of inland waters. Limnos in Greek means pool or pond, and ology, of course, is the study of. But we've expanded that to basically mean inland oceanography. If you have a lake or river inland, uh, on land, uh, within lands, uh, whether it's a salty lake like we have in our Great Basin systems like Pyramid Lake or or Mono Lake in these regions, or these freshwater iconic lakes or small mountain lakes. We'll go study them, but we'll also study the rivers that go into them and the rivers that the basins drain. So we study the physics, chemistry, and biology of those lakes. No, I just, uh, again, just fascinating. But um, so I feel fortunate to have recently joined you both uh, to a trip to Cambodia with the wonders of the Mekong project. And so can you share a little bit more about the project because you're both intimately involved with it and what makes it magnificent and challenging from a conservation perspective? The Wonders of the Mekong project is a project that's uh, brought Sudeep and I working together since 2017. It's funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development and it focuses on water, biodiversity, and fisheries issues in the Mekong region. 
So the Mekong River, for those of you uh, who don't know about it, it's the uh, most productive river on, on Earth. Two million tons of fish harvested every year from the Mekong. Uh, people in the region eat 100 pounds of fish per person per year, over 1,000 different kinds of fish in the basin. So it's an incredibly important area. And experts from the university here, like uh, Sudeep and I, go over to the Mekong region, work with scientists over there to build capacity to better manage and protect the Mekong River. And so we've been so fortunate uh, to be involved with this uh, and so fortunate to be over with you recently to really energize and help us develop our project. So the question that often comes up is what is capacity, right? So Zeb just described an incredibly glorious awesome river full of biodiversity and functions where people are taking their drinking water. But capacity can mean a lot of things. It can be the nerdy science stuff that we're trying to train the next generation of people uh, in so they can conserve and restore their system, uh, whether that's maintaining the biodiversity of fishes, the iconic fishes that I mentioned uh, earlier, the giant, giant fishes that he studies, but also building capacity that may be more technical, like how do we interpret water quality information? And so we in, we invited you to come to Cambodia so that you could uh, partake and emphasize that the capacity development is not only important from the technical side, but firming up relations between the University of Nevada and the Cambodian government. And that was for us really inspirational because we had these nice moments of opening a limnology laboratory, the first limnology water quality laboratory in Cambodia. Um, you were able to solidify partnerships with our Wonders of the Mekong Project to meet with the U.S. Ambassador of Cambodia and collectively connect the university more permanently in with the Cambodian government and the universities. And I think that's a level of capacity that as scientists we often forget about. It's not just the nerdy science, it's the framing of connections that when they're made deeper, um, we can help the next generation then build even more um, uh, abilities to conserve their waters. No, and one of the things amongst many that impressed me on this trip were the graduate students that you're training over there that, you know, reside there and are residents of Cambodia. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the important aspects of the project is scholarly exchange. So we have graduate students here at UNR that are doing research over there. We support uh, about a dozen Cambodian graduate students in Cambodia to do their work there. And we've also brought them over to the U.S., to the University of Nevada for exchanges to learn from Sudeep, to go out to our field sites, to go up to Tahoe. So a big part of the project is this exchange between students and scholars, both here in Nevada and also in Cambodia. We're learning from each other. We're building up each other. We're encouraging each other. Uh, and some of these scientists... Uh, We've worked with for 20 years now. So we've been doing this long enough where we these connections and partnerships and friendships that we have have become very strong and important to us. Yeah, so the, the graduate students and then the postgraduate PhDs we call postdocs, I mean, between 12 to 16 people working there. And, it, and it's, it's not just work. It's these um, part of the fundamentals between a U.S. government cooperative project with the University of Nevada is also to cement... Um, these exchanges so we learn about culture and we learn about scientific endeavors. And that, that really is a way that we can make this world a better place. It is about the science and capacity, but it's really about the grad students and the next generation of trainees that are leaders in their own right now moving forward. And earlier we talked about how Zeb and I were graduate school housemates. I mean, in some ways that was 20 years ago and we were trained by great people who wanted to just 
just push this envelope a little bit more forward and and make the world a better place. No, and you talked about having your grand students and, and what have you. So there are generational students that are learning from you and going on, as you say, impacting the world. Yeah, we had a great time when we were in Cambodia for opening this limnology laboratory for me. It was really emotional. And having uh, you there as a and, and Zeb as kind of these formal partners in, in opening ceremonies. But during that period, we also met with our graduate students. And my graduate students there now are having students. And I am feeling like an old grandpa. But it felt great to watch the smiles on people's faces and the training that continues. And that is really embodies what the University of Nevada is about. We have a mission to move things forward in, in development of individual capacity, but also in this broad programmatic level of making the world better. The wonders of Mekong students are starting, we're starting to see them become leaders in their own right. So one of our students is at a United Nations World Heritage Site meeting on plastic pollution. And so she's participating in that. We had one of our graduate students at the College of Science was a College of Science Young Alumni of the Year this past year. So we get to see the students grow as well, which is really exciting for us. No, it was, it's amazing. So Zeb, you talked a little bit, or you both talked about it, about being all over the world uh, with regard to your research. Has the cultures that you've come to learn and respect affected your research? Oh, 100%. I mean, for my research, I rely on local scientists, local communities for my work. My work would not be possible without those relationships. And so it's fundamental to the work that I do. Uh, as one example, uh, you know, we have, and you were out on the river, you saw this. Um, I've been working with uh, fishermen that I've known uh, for 20 years, we had that relationship for 20 years were with them, knew them when their children were born. And now I see their children today and they have kids. So it's this, it's this long-term relationship that's absolutely critical. There's, um, you know, information that, that comes from the research from these relationships. And there's also just a personal connection that's, that's incredibly important. Well, and real quickly, talk about this trust that's been built, for example, with those, those families and and the fishermen that, for example, they may catch a really rare and important fish and talk about what you've done to preserve that fish. Yeah, so we work with communities there. Uh, there are these critically endangered fish, Mekong giant catfish, giant uh, carp, giant freshwater stingray, some of the largest and most endangered fish in the world. And when the fishermen catch them, normally those fish are sold for food. But we've established trust with people living along the river and so now when they catch one of those fish, they'll call us, we'll go out, work with them, we tag the fish and release it back into the river. And so when I first started this work, uh, you know, th those fish were being harvested. And now we have a chance not only to get them back in the river for conservation purposes, but also learn about them, conduct our research. The key part in all of the projects we do, whether it's international work in Cambodia or even the work we're trying to do here at home, it's to involve community to help collect some of their information for their resource or their, their natural environment. And people around the planet want to help. Um, and so whether it's tagging fish, meaning literally inserting a transmitter into fish so that way you can track its movements in a river to understand where its critical habitat is for conservation, or even working with communities to monitor their own water quality. 
uh, from their rivers and lakes so they can have a healthier uh, lifestyle uh, and promote the conservation of their systems. It, it's critical for all of us as scientists to embed ourselves within communities. So let's shift gears a little bit. Um, there was a viral video that came out last summer. I think I read that it was one of the 20 most watched videos on the planet, like 120 million views, something just incredible like that. But talk about the largest freshwater fish ever recorded. Yeah, so this gets back to our talking about working with communities. Last summer in June 2022, one of the communities in northern Cambodia, a fisherman caught a 300 kilogram, so 661 pound giant freshwater stingray. And when the fisherman caught this fish, he called uh, our Cambodian team members in Cambodia, and they went up, drove all night, went out to the river to meet with this fisherman, and then together they tagged the fish for research and then were able to release it back into the wild. And I think one of the reasons why the video was so popular is that the community is all surrounding this fish. It's in the water, and people can Google it. They can see this video. Check it out on YouTube. Check it out on YouTube. Giant stingray Mekong. But uh, they release this fish, and the community, you hear all the the kids, you know, saying bye-bye, and the stingray swims along the surface for a little bit and then disappears into the river. So it was an absolutely incredible moment, and I like to contrast it. So when I first started doing this work, working with communities, one of the first giant catfish I saw was harvested and killed. And so uh, through the long-term work with fishing communities, the fact that that fish was caught and then released for conservation and science, to me, that was just an incredibly proud of that moment, very inspired by that moment to see that we'd been able to come that far to the point where those fish are making it back in the river and we're able to learn about them. So let's um, move north. You're, you're kind of like Indiana Jones. You're all over the world. But uh, let's go north to Mongolia. And Dr. Chandra, if you could talk a little bit about your research there. Yeah. So so we've been also working in Mongolia since 2001. And since we were graduate students, actually, and we became friends through that process, also working with our colleagues in Mongolia and, and, and taking people back to that time period. Remember, Mongolia was affiliated with the former Soviet Union. And so in 2001, it was making its transition into a democracy at that time. And so we were on the ground at that time as graduate students and later as faculty members here at the University of Nevada to determine how to protect Mongolian rivers during this time of change, economic change that was happening and development with mining and things like that. And so we uh, helped establish and set up programs there where we were uh, trying to understand how land use changes uh, would influence water quality there. Well, those are pretty relatively simple, straightforward studies. And then we started embedding ourselves with a larger project to conserve the world's largest trout. So this could be a trout that's six to seven feet long, similar to the fish that Zeb has studied and has uh, documented in his um, monster fish television shows. It's called the Hucho Taiman. Uh, And so it can be a large trout called a river shark that moves through these rivers. But to understand the ecology of the fish and the water quality together was really rare. And what we ended up doing is taking a very similar approach after – we're doing this now for 20 years – is where you can work with the communities to – to um, identify where the fish are located, tag the fish again with these little sensors, watch them migrate and move into their critical habitats where they spawn in the spring and early summer, and maybe they go feed in the, in the late summer, fall somewhere else. 
And so our work there in Mongolia in these remote sections in the Lake Baikal watershed that goes down into Russia, it's about a 14 to 16 hour Jeep ride from the capital. Uh, so it takes a lot of energy and effort to get there. But there are still these resilient communities of sheep herders and, and people who ranch that are way out there. And we set up a little mini field station and we've been going there almost every fall since 2003. No, and you, you talked about remote. That's about as remote as it gets. And there are no luxuries out there, correct? Yeah, there are mm -hmm. not a lot of luxuries out there. I mean, with, it, with science adventure and excitement around ecology of system also comes a little bit of hardship. For example, uh, I do like eating fruits and vegetables on a regular basis. Well, you know, the middle of Siberia doesn't afford itself to having a lot of fruits and vegetables. So we end up eating, while we're in the field, lots of sheep or mutton with rice, uh, potatoes maybe, um, not a lot of flavorful foods. So for this uh, um, South Asian background person, you know, I love spicy food, but we don't really get that out there. And so there are those types of neat cultural connectivities that happen with the science and you just kind of, you push through. And, and what we're trying to do now, whether it's the Mongolia project or uh, programs or, or Mekong or working down in Latin America is we want to get our students going to these new places. And so we've done that now. We bring our students from the University of Nevada, graduate students, over to Mongolia to do a side, small side project every year. And then they take those results, publish them, and then we move that information into the hands of policymakers to help conserve the rivers and lakes there. It's pretty exciting. What do you think about the trips to Mongolia? It's been 20 years. We've been working there for a long time. And even as a, a fish biologist, as a scientist, you know, one of the exciting things about that work is you're working with a new species. You're learning things every, every year. We go over with students. We learn something new. And as an example, these fish can live for up to 50 years. And I didn't appreciate when we first went over there, you fish and a fish that you catch, it could be there for 50 years. And so you're catching the same fish year after year after year. Uh, so we, we've been there for 20 years. We can catch the same fish that we did 20 years ago. And so it shows you the importance of research to understand that that's happening to understand their ecology and also understand the importance of catch and release and of conservation. Because if you take those big fish out of the system, then they're gone. Well, let's continue our trip around the globe and let's get a little local here. I mean, I think I can speak for all of Northern Nevada that we are so proud to have one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth in our own backyard, Lake Tahoe. So let's Talk a little bit about that and what your research is there, Dr. Chandra. Yeah, so, so global work is global, but global also means local. And so our work in the Lake Tahoe Basin is pretty exciting because it's, for, for me, it's, it's thinking about the fragility of nature and the information we need to help protect the lake's iconic clarity, but also the biodiversity within these lakes. And so we've had a number of projects um, where we've had our graduate students and, and postdoctoral research trained to understand those aspects of the system. And uh, some of the work at Lake Tahoe these days is, is, while it does focus on the clarity, the clarity is largely measured in the offshore uh, where people go boating. But we know a lot of the action these days in lakes is not in the offshore. It's actually around the edges of the lake, the bathtub ring that you might have, right? And so you see in your bathtub uh, the foam particles gathering around the edge of the bathtub if you're sitting in your bathtub. Well, that happens in lakes as well. And it turns out at Lake Tahoe, the near shore or the edge of the lake is changing far faster than the offshore. So some of the work we've been doing is trying to understand what causes that greening. 
Is that because of uh, warming temperatures from changing climate? A little bit. Or is it because of the species that were introduced into the lake 120 years ago, like the crayfish? So crayfish are about the size of your hand. They also live about 10 years old in Lake Tahoe, but they can change the food web and the biological articulation of the nearshore, which causes uh, nearshore greening. The other part that's exciting for me is thinking about the bottom of Lake Tahoe, even deeper in the waters, 120 to 300 to maybe 500 to 700 feet below the surface. We have biodiversity that's endemic. It only lives at Lake Tahoe. And these are cute little critters the size of a quarter, a stonefly, blind amphipods, things that are only found in Lake Tahoe have very unique life history strategies or, or how they live. And they're, they're being reduced very quickly in the lake because of all the changes. And so the real challenge for us that I'm excited about is packaging all of this together and trying to work with our policymakers to find a way to restore and protect the fragility of that, that lake, the fragile nature. There's good news in every story, and we're making progress everywhere. We understand why clarity is changing now. We understand some of the changes in that bathtub ring. We also know why some of the biodiversity is changing. And so we've been feeding that information as a partner with the Tahoe Science Advisory Council to the policymakers to, to try to engage in developing more progressive policies. Seb? Yeah, we also have a project we're uh, working with our graduate students and with Nevada Department of Wildlife on an update of the status of Nevada's native fishes. So believe it or not, Nevada used to have king salmon. Did you know that? I did not <laughs> so know that. So there used to be king salmon in northern Nevada. Uh, we used to be home and maybe still are home to the world's largest minnow called the Colorado pike minnow or maybe North America's largest minnow. And we also have some species of smaller fish that are only found in a single pool anywhere in the world. So Nevada has this amazing diversity of fish, amazing fish stories. And Hi highest biodiversity outside of Georgia in the United States for fishes. Yeah. And so we're working to update the information that we have about Nevada's fish, and we're looking to, to produce some products around that work in the next couple of years. There's a lot of work to be done both abroad and here at home, and the work is exciting because it's like new discoveries all the time. Not too many people have focused on Nevada's native fish. So if there are people out there that want to help um, understand these the biodiversity and the changes, let us know. So as our listeners know and you know, we now have a campus at Lake Tahoe and in Incline Village, the University of Nevada, Reno at Lake Tahoe. How is that going to help your research and presence up at the lake? So... The new campus at Lake Tahoe affords us opportunities from research all the way into education. And those things as professors at the university, we, we, we fundamentally know they're intertwined together. We cannot pull them apart. And man, that having a space up there that can engage people in understanding the changes and bring our students up to a living laboratory to be right in the forest and right on, on the lake surface to study things is going to be amazing. I think it's going to be a mind-blowing opportunity for the students. I think the research capacity can grow even further. There are things that we would like to study up there, but because we have to hold the samples uh, for a limited amount of time, we can now take those samples straight to the laboratories uh, on the campus and analyze them in a way we could have not done before that. And so this new campus, it is, it is the greatest opportunity in my lifetime of being at the University of Nevada. And I hope our community members will come in and, and work with us to educate the next generation of conservation scientists up there. I will say one last thing about the new campus. It's not just about science. Science and culture often mesh together. 
and the as we've discussed earlier. And that new campus affords openings for thinking about art, economics, all the English writing, like all these things that where scientists we can often become we often have blinders on. And so if we can integrate art and science together, we will be one of the premier institutions in the Western United States to do that. Wow. Seb, real quick, and then we're going to have one more topic I want to get into. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to echo what Sadeep said. I, you know, in addition to the research opportunities, I think it provides us with an amazing opportunity to focus on water issues, environmental issues, sustainability. There's that natural connection between some of our priorities here in Reno and the campus up in Tahoe. So I'm so excited about that. So earlier in our in this podcast at Seb, we talked a little bit about the monster fish in the National Geographic series. There was a museum exhibit that National Geographic had all over the country for monster fish, but where's it coming now permanently? Can you chat about that? Yeah, 10 years ago, the University of Nevada and National Geographic partnered on a large-scale monster fish exhibit, 6,000 square feet, has life-size sculptures of all of these, five of these big fish, so it's like a one-stop shop for learning about big fish all over the world. And we have been lucky enough now, the University of Nevada is going to take over ownership of the exhibit, and it is open at the Nevada Discovery Museum in downtown Reno. So this spring, this summer, next fall, I encourage everyone to come down to the Nevada Discovery Museum and check out this University of Nevada monster fish exhibit. I could talk forever with, with the two of you, but you know we've, we've talked about Cambodia and Mongolia, Lake Tahoe, the Amazon, Europe, all these different places. I'm just curious, how do all these projects connect? Yeah, I mean, there's there's ways that all of these projects connect. And, and at our university, we have a place called the Global Water Center. And the Global Water Center is um, an opportunity for us to facilitate global to local activities on any issue dealing with water. And it's not just fun around the basic science that we might do to understand process, but it's also around application to help conserve systems. So they connect in a way at the university through a place, but in another way they connect is broadly through education and, and inviting policymakers and managers to come interact and interface. And what I've always learned is that lessons learned in one place we can always apply to another and vice versa. And, and so that's why I love bringing our Guatemalan students up to the University of Nevada to study Lake Tahoe and our Lake Tahoe students down to Guatemala because fundamental lessons learned across those systems as an example allows us to rapidly come up with information and then, then we just end up conserving a place. And so, yeah, education connects us, places connect us. And I'm just a big believer that there's a fundamental truth in, in people. People really, really want their natural waters to be protected. And so that's how we work. Dr. Hogan? Yeah, beyond the research, I think it's the uh, work with communities, outreach, education uh, that connects all of these different projects and Sudeep and I's uh, work together and friendship together for the last 20 years. Well, I'll let you both have the last word. Any closing comments that you'd like to make? I have been at the University of Nevada now for almost 18 years, and I have watched this institution go from great to pretty awesome. Like, we are just accelerating at this fast pace in 18 years. And I can envision a place with the University of Nevada that goes from pretty awesome to magnificent. And we're doing this with capacities with the 
new place at Lake Tahoe with our excellent faculty from the arts and sciences and engineering and journalism. And I would just love to close with the idea that those of you out there who are listening to this podcast, if you feel like you'd like to engage with our university on topics that are important to you, reach out to the faculty. We live in your community and we want to help. And I know so many faculty that are excited about engaging with community members. So let's make it happen. Seb? Very excited to be here at the university, to be part of seeing the university grow. Uh, if people would like to learn more about our work, uh, we also, I've been working with the University of Nevada Press. It's very exciting news, a book coming out called Chasing Giants in Search for the World's Largest Freshwater Fish. So if people would like to learn more about Big Fish, I encourage them to uh, order a copy of, of the book. Thank you very much for having us here this morning. And the book is available on Amazon in case you want to buy that or from your local Sundance bookstore. All right. Well, I expect a signed copy, so I'll be excited <laughs> about that. So unfortunately, that is all the time we have for this episode of Sagebrushers. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Chandra, Dr. Hogan. This has really been extraordinary and really proud to have you part of the Wolfpack family. Next time, we will bring you another episode of Sagebrushers and continue to tell the stories that make our university special and unique. And until then, I am President Brian Sandoval of the University of Nevada, Reno. Go Pack! <laughs>